Uh, our Bible reading this morning uh, comes from Matthew 16, and you'll find that on page 983 of the Church Bibles, Matthew chapter 16, reading from verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and that gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, (coughs) chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he asked. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man man coming in his kingdom. The uh, British Open Golf Tournament this year at Turnbury was made quite exciting by the comeback of one of the uh, all-time golf greats who'd been, at the age of 59, I think, written off from winning a major tournament. But uh, four days, Tom Watson played some quite brilliant golf. He was on a real high By the time he came to the final hole in his final round, he was still in the lead and just had to hold his final putt to win the championship. But as we know, he missed it and lost in the playoff. He went from being on a real high, as we see in this photo here, to being on quite a low, as we'll see here, as he thought of what might have been as that putt stopped short of the hole. But of course, life is a series of highs and lows, some of them outside our control, but many of them caused by our own mistakes as well. And the Christian life is no different, although there is a moment, as we were saying earlier with the children, when we, we change from being a rebel against God to a friend of God, and that's not always a moment that we can pinpoint exactly in our lives. But from that time on, the, the Christian life is a learning process, It's a process in which we become more like Christ, but a process in which we experience many setbacks along the way. 
And those setbacks may be caused by intellectual doubts that uh, we grapple with. They may be caused by tragedies in our own personal lives. They may be caused by temptation and falling into it. We've been looking at this um, in this current sermon series of what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, today we're looking at the fact that being a follower of Jesus is a learning process. And if we recognise that, that it is a learning process, and we shouldn't expect to become a perfectly mature Christian overnight, that Jesus is our personal guide who, who is with us through that whole process, then that should be a, a huge encouragement to us. It should help us be prepared for the falls when they come. Because part of our problem is that we live in a society in which we all want to become experts in everything overnight. You know, we don't want to have to, have to go through the, the painful learning experience. Seven years ago, I bought this uh, CD. It says, learn to touch type in just 90 minutes. <laughs> I remember doing the first lesson and feeling very pleased with myself, being on a bit of a high. 367,000 minutes later, I'm still waiting to do the next lesson. The passage we're looking at this morning, Peter goes from a real high when Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He is up there to a real low when Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Just when he thought... He had things cracked. He messes it all up. As we've been saying in this series, as we've looked particularly at the the disciple Peter, what a great reassurance it is that um, in all Peter's mistakes we see ourselves and we realise that when we mess up, it's actually not quite as bad as we thought. There is still hope. We still can change. If you are a uh, visitor here this morning, you may be interested to know that we run a, a course called Christianity Explored, which is for those who are investigating the Christian faith, or for those who are already Christians but who want to brush up on the basics of Christianity. Um, We'll be starting another one of those in October, and uh, if you are interested in doing that, then do please come have a word with me afterwards. But what that course attempts to, to answer are three key questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? And what we see in these two incidents that were read out to us um, by Sam, placed next to each other, is that at this stage Peter had understood who Jesus was. But he still hadn't grasped why he had come and what it meant to follow him. Well, we're going to start this morning by looking at Peter's moment of revelation before we move on to his, his rapid fall. <coughs> The first point I want to make is that Peter has learned, as we see in the story, who Jesus is. Now, if you think about it by now, the disciples would have been with Jesus for several months. They would have seen him perform miracles. They heard him preach. They saw his authority over sickness, over nature, over death, over evil. And how he claimed to be able to forgive sins. But now it comes to crunch time. And first Jesus asks them the question, who do people say I am? And uh, the disciples reply with the different views that have been going around. Well, well, some say you're John the Baptist. In other words, you're a prophet. You are a messenger from God. You can see that in the way you preach. 
Others say, you're Elijah, you're, you know, you're another prophet like Elijah, you're, you're the mouthpiece of God. You know, there's something about you that's different from all the other religious teachers. Or Jeremiah. You, know, you have a real concern for those around you who you see are lost. Then he puts them on the spot. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's often the first one to, to blurt something out, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this time he doesn't need to worry about having opened his mouth too soon because he's spot on. But you know, then he has had months to think it over. And the truth has been gradually dawning for him. If you think back about previous episodes in his life, there was the time when uh, Jesus told him to make another, um, put the nets out again, and they made that amazing catch of fish. And at that point he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. And it was the incident a couple of weeks ago that we looked at with, G- with Peter walking on the water when he starts to sink. And he calls out, save me, Lord. And all the disciples in the boat there said, worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. But up to this point, they'd never been put on the spot and asked directly, who do you say that I am? But Jesus knew that the time had come when this question must be put to them. And that everything had been preparing them for this moment. They needed to be convinced about who he was as a person before he was able to carry on with the next phase of teaching and explain to them why he had come. And so Peter says, what by now is clear to all of them, he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the one who was to come as a saviour, as a king. Now he doesn't fully understand what that all entails, but he is convinced that he is the one. And he knows that the Christ must also be, as he says, the son of the living God. This person right in front of them, hard as it may be for them to fully appreciate, is God. He shares the nature of God the Father, his character, he reveals his glory. He is divine. But look at Jesus' reaction. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, yes, well done, spot on, good job, you've been listening well. You're a star pupil. No, Jesus replies here in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You are blessed. You're incredibly privileged to have grasped this. Why? He carries on. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. He has chosen to reveal to you the truth about who I am. And that should be a great encouragement to us as well because if God chose to reveal himself to this very simple, rough, impetuous Galilean fisherman who was as great a sinner as any of us here this morning then if he was prepared to open his eyes to see what remained hidden from the eyes of those who are much more wise, much more intelligent, much more educated then he can do the same for us. If we ask him to, if we accept that we will only understand not through our intellectual efforts, but through his grace. When Jesus first met Simon in an episode recorded in John's Gospel, he said to him, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas or Peter. And now the time has come when 
Peter is ready to have his name changed. Jesus says to him, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the fulfilment of the promise that Jesus had made to him earlier. You will be Peter. Well, how is this episode relevant to us today? Well, the question that Jesus puts to his disciples is a question we all must answer. Who do you say I am? I wonder what answers we would get if we walked down Crendon High Street. If we asked people we bumped into, who do you say Jesus is? What different answers we would get? We can think about what answers they would answer. But ultimately, we need to decide for ourselves, how do we answer that question? When the disciples were asked that question, they didn't know what we know now. You know, we know that Jesus died. We know that he rose from dead. We know that the early church grew in the power of the Spirit to reach throughout the world. But knowing what we know now from this side of history doesn't necessarily make the process of believing any easier. Because involved in that process is both a a rational analysis of the evidence, but also a spiritual process. And in analysing the evidence of who possibly could Jesus be, I think logically you can really only come to three alternatives. Either he must have been mad, you know, he was deluded into thinking he was God when he wasn't really, but there wasn't really anything in his behaviour we read about to, to show any sign of madness. Or he was bad. You know, after all, if he wasn't God but claimed that he was and deliberately misled people into thinking that, then that is pretty evil, isn't it? And that excludes the possibility of him simply being a good moral teacher. But again, when we read his teaching, when we see his compassion, when we see his sacrifice, then that is far from the impression we get of him. And if he's not mad and he's not bad, then he must be God. If you can think of another alternative, then do please come and speak to me afterwards. I'll be very pleased to talk to you. Now that is a rational analysis of the facts that a jury would would come to um, in order to come to a verdict beyond all reasonable doubt. But that is not enough, is it? To, To come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and worth following does require an inner appreciation of the person of Jesus. Is this somebody who is worth following? We need to be attracted to him as a person. We need to be willing to submit to his authority, to give him the honour that is due his name. Peter has acknowledged who Jesus is and he wants to follow him, but he hasn't yet appreciated the full implications of that. He's up there on a high, but he's about to come crashing down. And the second point I want to make is that Peter still needs to understand why Jesus came and what it means to follow him. This is very much here a turning point for Peter and the rest of the disciples because from this point on, Jesus is able to start teaching them stuff that he hadn't been able to up to this point. Now they have acknowledged who he is, his his identity, he's ready to explain to them more about why he came, his, his mission. And at this point, we just need to try and put ourselves in the, the shoes of the disciples. Imagine we are hearing these next few verses for the first time. 
You know, we spend a long time with him. Remember those amazing demonstrations we've seen of his power, his authority, all those healings, bringing somebody back to life, casting out demons, stilling storms. You know, they, they see he's the Christ, the son of the living God. But now, hear what he has to say in verse, 30, verse 21. Just imagine you're hearing this for the first time. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now I wonder what you'd have thought at that time. Wouldn't you have said, hang on a minute. What's all this about suffering and death? That's not power. That's weakness at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, you know, the teachers of the law, the ones you know, he's been criticising and correcting. Are they the ones who really win out at the end of the day? You know, as the disciples listened to this, they probably didn't even hear the fact that he would be raised to life. They probably stopped listening at the mention of death. And it's not surprising that Peter's response is, never, Lord, you know, this shall never happen to you. You are the one I've given up my life for. You are the king who's come. You are all-powerful. That's not my idea of what a Christ is like. What Peter doesn't realise is that the reason Jesus must die is because of God's love for the world. Because of his justice. Because of his desire to save sinners. It is the only way in which we can be saved. And to willingly give your life for others is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of power. Liz and I celebrated our uh, 15th wedding anniversary this week by going up to to London to watch uh, Les Miserables. I don't know how many of you have seen that that musical. If you have, you'll know that uh, there's uh, quite an obnoxious character in it, the the police inspector called Javert. And uh, you'll remember how Jean Valjean, the the key player in the the musical, is imprisoned for for 19 years for, for effectively stealing a a loaf of bread to feed his family. But after an amazing act of mercy by a bishop, he becomes a changed man. And despite all his acts of goodness, though, as he becomes this new man, this this police inspector doesn't believe that it is possible for a man to change, and he hounds him. He's after him right until the end of his life. And when the barricades go up and then the revolutionaries come out and... um, and a protest. Uh, this, this police inspector is captured as a spy by the, the revolutionaries. And, and Jean Valjean is the one who is given the chance to determine what should happen to him. This is now his chance to get revenge on all those years of persecution. What does he do? Well, he actually lets him go. He shows him a, a complete act of mercy. And the thing is that this, this police inspector, Val- Javert, just can't cope with that act of mercy. And he ends up killing himself. I think what you see through there is that mercy is powerful. It is far more powerful than violence or revenge. Jesus' death here would not mean failure. It would be the fulfilment of his time on earth. It would be followed by resurrection from death and his ascension to glory. So why is Jesus' reaction to Peter's words so strong then? Well, let's look at the words that Jesus uses. 
He says in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. What he's saying is, take your rightful place. Get behind me. You've just called me the son of the living God. And now, here you are thinking that you know better. And in many ways, what Peter is doing here is denying what he's just confessed. You know, you've tried to usurp me as the son of God, Jesus is saying to him. Remember, you're one of my followers. You're not my leader. And that is really what sin is all about. It's what Satan is all about. It's trying to take the place of God. It is Christ's church that is going to be built on Peter the Rock. It's not Peter's church. And it will only succeed if Peter is following Jesus. And that goes for us as a church here today as well. We will only grow if we are following Jesus. Jesus says to him, you are a stumbling block to me. And to call Peter Satan is to acknowledge the the influence of, of, of the devil on him at this point. Because what Peter is trying to do here, even though he doesn't really know it himself, even if it's quite sub, in the subconscious, is, is that he's a stumbling block to Jesus. He's diverting Jesus from his mission by saying, never, Lord, you shall never die. The reason Jesus came was to set sinners free by dying for them. And here is Peter, with the devil's influence, trying to stop that happening. Satan's job is to put stumbling blocks in the way of Jesus' work. And sadly, he uses people to do that. And he even uses Christians to do that without them even knowing it often. And we do need to be alive to that, that real danger. The fact that Satan could even be using us at times for his purposes. You know, Peter, to his great credit, didn't uh, take offence at being called Satan. He realised that what Jesus was doing here was correcting him. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He's thinking in human terms. He's not looking at things from God's perspective. He's not thinking of suffering and death as powerful rather than weak. Well, I want to finish with um, just three brief applications here. A challenge, an encouragement and a rebuke. The challenge is, be careful not to deny Jesus as Lord with your actions and your words. Now, I'm sure many of us in Peter's situation would have said exactly the same thing as he did. Never, Lord, never. And before we are quick to condemn Peter, are there ways in which we've done exactly the same as him? Where we've said we are a Christian, we are a believer, and then in our actions in our words, effectively denied the one in whom we've said we believe. Maybe it's where we, we've seen, we've read clear teaching in, in, in God's word, but somehow we've, we've tried to, to deny it, just try, somehow try and make our interpretation of that fit what we wanted to say, where we're saying we actually know better than what God says. Or where maybe we, things have just not gone as... Um, we had hoped God has not answered our prayers as we would have liked. And we blamed him. We've become angry with him. We, we've questioned his perfect will. And sometimes it is difficult to understand the way in God which answers our prayers. But that is where we do need to remember our limited human understanding. We need to remember that God is sovereign. He does have perfect wisdom. He does have perfect knowledge. 
and power and just put trust in his hands. It's a challenge, it's an encouragement. Jesus wants us to, to learn. He wants us to mature. He knows that we all make mistakes. And it's, it's a reminder here in this episode that in a society where we expect instant results, where we're only given one chance often, that we don't become wise and mature overnight, but that God works with us to help us mature. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, look, I know I said I was going to build my church on you, but actually I think I've probably made a bit of a mistake. No, I think I need to go and find somebody else. Somebody who's a bit more reliable than you. No, he keeps his faith in Peter. He just sees this as another episode in Peter's learning process, a process that will continue in the, in the episode, in the, in the next chapter, which we'll look at next week, the Transfiguration, and will continue through the remainder of Jesus' lifetime. Jesus is a saviour, but he's also a perfecter. And that means that he does need to correct us, he does need to discipline us from time to time. And that is for our own good, and we should welcome that. Which brings us on to our final application, rebuke. How do we respond when we are criticised, when we are corrected? We don't have Jesus personally with us to, to discipline us. But we do have his word. And it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, his word is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. And we have fellow believers who are able to point us to his word when we start to drift away. But if we are to learn from Jesus, if we are to become the disciples he wants us to become, we need to have a teachable spirit. And the extent to which we are teachers may be indicated by the way in which we respond to constructive criticism. Are we defensive? Or do we say, actually, maybe there is something what that person is saying to me here. He didn't get all uptight or depressed when he was disciplined here. He knew that, that Jesus was saying these words out of love for him. And as I conclude, we haven't got time to look at verses 24 to 28 this morning. That's the subject of another sermon some other time, but all they do is stress the fact that it's not enough just to acknowledge Jesus Christ as a saviour. We need to submit to him as a Lord. We need to follow him, and that it means accepting his, his teaching, his perfect will for our lives, and that will mean denying ourselves. Peter here is prepared to do that, even after this huge setback, because he trusts in Jesus. He knows he has a lot to learn, but he will go on after more setbacks to become that rock on which Jesus builds his church. Jesus doesn't write his followers off when they make mistakes. Let me leave you with a verse from Philippians 1, verse 6. It says there, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus.